So let's jump into Genesis chapter 45. Uh, we will pick up right in the very first verse and go right through there. It'll be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use your Bible, use your Bible app, whatever that may look like that's best for you. But here we go. Genesis chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself. We'll kind of recap this in a minute, but Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to uh, He's made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord to all the house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For these, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty." And now uh, your eyes see me, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You are, you are to tell my father of all the honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother, ben, his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and, that his brothers, and after that his brothers talked with him. And the report was heard that in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Pharaoh said to Joseph, say, uh, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt to your little ones for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern of your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To, this, to his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father in the journey. Then he sent the brothers away. As they are departed, they, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. He knew his brothers. So they went up out of the Egypt, and they came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. And, he, and his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw that the wagons that Joseph had sent uh, to carry him, he, uh, uh, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Man, let's pray. God, we need you. What a story. 
What an epic story that we find ourselves in. Teach us something from your word today, Holy Spirit. Awaken us to the good news that you love us and care for us. You're always at work on our behalf. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in chapter 45. Uh, This story started way back in chapter 37 uh, with Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery, uh, to actually into to some travelers because they were so angry with him. Again, you think about that. Their brothers were so mad with him that they sold him to some strangers and were like, away with you, scram, beat it. We don't have anything to do with you. You are dead to us. And so you go, if you're not familiar with the story, you go, well, what happened? Well, this is kind of how it all kind of transpired. I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up for you in just a couple of minutes. So Joseph wore quite the flamboyant coat. Uh, not necessarily one suited for working in the field. Remember, we had a picture of it. And, and so uh, this, was the, the, he, this was not suited for taking care of any animals or working in the fields, but the, Joseph had this amazing coat that he wore, and the brothers didn't like him for numerous reasons, and it went on. Uh, first, Joseph had a dream. <clears throat> and his first dream was, about these sheaves of wheat. He told them, hey, brothers, I had this dream and these sheaves of wheat and my sheaf of wheat like stood up in the middle of the field and then all of your sheaves of wheat like bowed down and worshiped my sheaf of wheat. And he's like, their brother's like, what? What are you talking about? And then he said, but not only that, I had another dream that even the moon and the stars bowed down to me and they were worshiping me along with you. And so it incensed the brothers. I mean, they were angry about his dreams. Not only did, you know, that Joseph didn't come and do the things that they did, and he wore this thing, and, uh, and he had these dreams about them. They were just incensed about it. And so they planned to kill their brother. But Reuben kind of talked him off the ledge and said, no, let's don't kill him. Let's sell him instead of killing him. And so sure enough, that's what they did. They sold him. And so the brothers took their, his pimp jacket and threw some blood on it, and took it back to their father and said, oh no, father, some wild animal has killed Joseph and has eaten him. And this is all that we have left is this crazy jacket that he wore. But look, it's got blood all over it. And some animal has eaten him and he's gone. And so uh, from that point forward, Jacob, their father was grief stricken. And he was just torn to pieces because his son was dead. He can imagine the story about some wild animal just eating him alive and tearing him from limb to limb. Well, on the other side of that story, the story goes on, and it was kind of an emotional roller coaster with Joseph's saga beginning from uh, his interactions with uh, him being thrown into prison. He dealt with Potiphar's wife. He interpreted dreams while he was in prison. Uh, he be- ended up becoming Pharaoh's right-hand man after he interpreted not only one, but more dreams for Pharaoh. And, and now he was presiding over the worldwide pandemic, which was not the coronavirus, but the, uh, it was actually a famine in that day. And so he presided over the whole famine and getting food literally to the entire world. And now he would come to where he was actually seeing his brothers come to him and ask for food and ask for help. And he was trying at best, his best, to conceal his excitement because his actual brothers were there with him. He couldn't believe that after all these years, 22 years, uh, that his brothers were there asking him for help. Which brings us to chapter 45, and that's where we are uh, in today's text. So before we jump into talking about that, um, 
Whenever you go to the airport, are you people watchers? And it's, I mean, I like, I like people watch wherever I go, right? I just, I, I'm always, if, so if you're somewhere and I'm there too, just know that I'm watching you and I'm, what are they going to do now? You know, how are they going to handle this? Uh, but going to the airport's one of those things, kind of a cool thing when you go to the airport because you have people coming and you going, they're coming off flights and they're getting off of flights and you don't know where they're going. They're going, they could possibly be going anywhere in the world they might want to go. Uh, but the cool thing is, is when people are waiting for their loved ones to come off of a flight. And so they're, they're just waiting, and you watch them, and they're just kind of looking around. They're like, where are they? Where are they? I mean, they could be looking for the president, for all you know, because there's so much anticipation built up. And they're like, I can't wait to see them. They're, they're like looking over people and doing this kind of thing. And finally, when they see somebody, it's literally like they see the president of the United States. They're so overjoyed to see their loved ones, right? You've seen that happen in airports, right? And, and kids are, are some of the greatest there. They're like almost like a halfback behind the line of scrimmage looking for a hole to run through and they find a hole and they like run to their parents or their loved ones or whoever it is, but they're so excited about seeing someone. It's really a joy to watch. It is a, uh, it's really the joy of relationships that kind kind of come to fruition there in an airport. And it's really not, I don't think, an exaggeration to say that um, uh, relationships are some of the most important things in our life. Because really, the two great commandments that we get from Scripture are part of relationships. Scripture tells us what? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And then it tells us to love one another as we love ourselves, right? And so that's the two great relationships, love God, love one another, that we see told to us uh, in the Scriptures. And, And whenever those relationships get broken, we know that it's not pleasing to God. It's not pleasing to God to have broken relationships, obviously, with him. If we're in, a, you know, we're in the middle of our sin and we're indulging ourselves in our sin and we are outside the God seemingly will for our life, or if you're here and you're outside the household of faith, no, God is calling you to repentance. God is calling you to himself. God wills that you would, 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 would desire for you to come to know him, even today. And he wouldn't desire for us to be in broken relationships with one another. If you're in a broken relationship with a brother, sister, sibling, somebody in your family, that's not God's desire for your family. It's not God's desire for your, your familial relationships to be broken. And for some of us, for those of us who are in the household of faith, part of that calling is for repentance. We should be the chief repenters in our families. You as a Christian should be the chief repenter in your family. You're like, you don't know what my brother did. You don't know what my family's done to me. I, I, I get it, man. I, trust me, I, I get it. I have to fight those same battles my own, myself sometimes. But I mean, he calls us to be the chief repenters, for us to, be, to, to, to bring those familial relationships back into good standing. And so I want to encourage you, even on Father's Day, maybe you don't have a great relationship with your father. Maybe today's the day you go and try to mend that relationship. Maybe it's not your father. Maybe it's somebody else in your family. I would encourage you to do that for sure. Because there's hardly anything as moving as seeing a familial relationship be restored. I mean, think about all the time and all the years that you might have spent angry with your sibling, angry with someone in your family, at odds with somebody. There's hardly anything better than seeing that fracture be healed. That's why Genesis 45, I think, is such a 
moving chapter. I mean, we're talking about seeing a reconciliation between Joseph and his brother after 22 years of separation and estrangement. I mean, Judah had this big plea in chapter 44 and uh, on behalf of Benjamin and their father. And, uh, and really, Joseph had seen, man, the, I think these brothers are truly sorrowful over what they've done to me. He heard their story and, and their impassioned plea of saying, you know, we wish that we'd never done anything like this. And this happened to our father. And they were truly repentant over their terrible sin of selling him into slavery. And so he lets himself go on this emotional kind of ride of revealing himself to his brothers. And finally, you see in, cha- in, chapter, in, uh, in verse 3, you can see him almost exclaim, I, I'm Joseph. It's me. The guy you sold 22 years ago. It's me. Uh, can, can't you see that picture? And he said, Hey, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? He knew his father was still alive, but he wanted to hear it one more time. And so can you imagine the brothers, though? Whenever Joseph says, I'm Joseph, kind of the whole, what are we supposed to do with this now? This guy that's in charge of, like, feeding the world is the guy that we sold to travelers and told our father, this is the the guy that's second only to Pharaoh in the entire world is our brother. What are we supposed to do with this? I mean, the brothers wouldn't known if he was angry. They wouldn't known if he was like full of spite and vengeance. They wouldn't have known at that particular moment what was about to do. And, And the text tells us that he shouted something in his Egyptian language and all of the, uh, the servants and all of his staff basically like turned on their heels and went out the door and he was left with his brothers. And the, the, the text kind of compresses the story. Do you know how the Bible does? It just tells us kind of facts. But he's like, he was emotionally just sobbing. The text tells us he was overwhelmed with emotion. You've been around somebody like that. Maybe it's your kid, you know, and they're... <laughs> You know, what a, and, you know, all the, and, yeah, but, and they don't know, and, and you can't speak, you know, now I'm out of breath, uh, uh, but they're, you know, they can't speak at that point and you don't know what's about to come out and, and it takes a while to kind of calm down. And that's where they found themselves is in the presence of Joseph making all those noises, uh, or whatever he was doing, uh, trying to calm down. And then he had, all they'd ever heard, heard him speak when they were there to talk with him before, they'd heard him speak um, uh, in their Egyptian dialect, and finally he spoke in Hebrew to them. He spoke where they could actually understand what he was having to say. I'm sure to hear Joseph speak was almost like hearing a dead man talk. I mean, they... They assumed he was dead, too. They, they know what happened with him 22 years. 22 years. It's like hearing a dead man talk. And he said, I am Joseph. Verse 3 uh, says this. It says, um, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They were dismayed 
at his presence. And the word translated dismayed means to be terrified. Yeah, they're scared. Uh, It's used to describe the feelings which swept over a group of men in battle when suddenly in battle, the enemy turns from running away from them and turns back toward them. So imagine yourself in battle and you're fighting this enemy and you're driving the enemy away and suddenly the enemy turns back and you know the fight is on. That word terrified, that, that word ter- that, that's the terror that came over those guys whenever he said, I'm Joseph. They're like, oh no, what, what's about to happen? They were speechless. Matter of fact, they, they don't say a word until we get down to like 15 verses into this chapter. And then Joseph says a few things. And as far as they could tell from what Joseph said, he wasn't angry or bitter at all. And there was no venomous words that came out of his mouth. All their fears, they were kind of almost, I can imagine them kind of cowering down from Joseph at the time. But the words that he spoke weren't words of anger. They weren't words of destruction. They weren't words of, uh, of, of tearing apart or tearing them down. I mean, they would have probably expected him to say, you dudes have treated me like dirt, and for 22 years I've been waiting to get you in this spot, and now you're going to get it. Not at all. That's not what he said. No hint of revenge. Instead, Joseph spoke kindly to them, showed every intention of treating them well. He promised to provide for them and their children through the coming years of the famine. He goes and he kisses not only Benjamin, who is his, his full brother, but he goes and kisses all the brothers. He's like, I, he was so happy to see these guys. And then finally, they were able to talk. And who knows what they said? Who knows what the conversation was like? And so that's the story in a nutshell. And so we could conclude from this story, one thing we could conclude is this. You must learn to relate to God to every event in your life, whether good or seemingly bad. That's something we could take from this. Don't write that down. Or we could say this. You must submit to God's sovereignty in every event in your life. We could take that from this text, right? That's something that we could, and that's a truth. That's something that is a truth. Because in and of these things, they're not terrible things for us to consider, but they also miss the point of preaching and teaching through the Bible. These conclusions really turn the focus to you. They turn the focus to you, and if you're struggling in any of these areas, which most of us probably do, It's easy to hear a preacher in a situation like this to tell you to do this thing. Hey, submit yourself to God's sovereignty in every event in your life. And so that usually leads us to two types of different results in situations like this. Either you'll do better in these areas or you'll do worse in these areas. Pretty simple, right? And the dual outcome from that is if I do better, then I feel better about myself. And if I do worse... I feel worse about myself. Pretty simple. 
neither of which is the goal of gospel preaching. The goal of gospel preaching is not for you to feel better about yourself. And the goal of gospel preaching is not for you to feel worse about yourself. See, church, my desire, as I preach to you every week or whoever stands in this pulpit, it's our desire every week as we preach is for you to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. For you to know him, the power of his resurrection. Why does knowing Jesus to repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, believing that God raised Jesus from the dead, why does that matter? And how does an Old Testament story like this help us to understand that? That's what I want us to help understand as we go through this text today. Look with me again and how this text unplays. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And so again, his brothers, he's finally revealed. Again, if you're catching up in the middle of the story, you're 40, we're 45 chapters into Genesis and about eight chapters into this story. But Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near to him, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into slavery. And now do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And so the key point I believe here is in verse five. Here's what it says. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Who was angry with Joseph? This, uh, here we go. Who was angry with Joseph? Yes, his brothers were angry with Joseph. Who sold Joseph? The brothers. Who faked Joseph's death? The brothers. Who was responsible for all this? Who was responsible for all this? If you say brothers, raise your hand. Y'all are so chickens. <laughs> it, who says God? Raise your hands. Y'all all chickens. Y'all ain't raising y'all's hand for nothing. I don't mean you're charismatic. We're just asking a question. God had a plan. God knew the events that he was orchestrating to achieve the salvation of Joseph's family. God knew the difficulty and the difficult steps that Joseph would have to endure to assure the salvation of his family. God sent Joseph into the clutches of death before he rescued him and raised him to achieve the salvation of his family and essentially the world. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? Hmm. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. 
Hmm, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Somebody going in and enduring some things on our, oh, Jesus going in and enduring some things on our behalf, him becoming poor so that we might become rich. Him enduring all those things so that we might be saved, right? Paul writes about this in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? Becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on the tree. He went and took our place. He went and endured the hardship for us so that we might be rescued from our sin and death. Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is that not a picture of what we see in our Old Testament text? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Man, he took all our stuff, just like Joseph had to endure the hardships so that his family might receive all the riches of Egypt. He took, Jesus took our sin so that in him, uh, he made him to be sin. So that, this is like 2 Corinthians 5, 21. You, you ought to know this one. You ought to underline this one. If you ever get a tattoo, this ought to be your tattoo. Uh, come on, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> You're like, tattoos in church? I don't know. No, don't look at that. Uh, uh, for our sake, for your sake, he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. It's called the great exchange. Yes. The great exchange. And so here's another one of those verses that speaks of the monergistic way of God's salvation. That is salvation from the Lord. Monergism, monergistic means it's one way. Uh, that, that salvation is monergistic. That means it is one way. Salvation is from the Lord. That, that salvation is not about you doing something. That you, all you can, salvation is from the Lord. Amen? Can we agree with that? Look at verse 6. It says, For the famine has been in the land these two years. So there's been a famine two years. And there is yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. So Joseph going to Egypt was from the Lord, right? The famine was from the Lord, right? Joseph's ascent was from the Lord. Yep. Jacob's family being there was, come on, you. this is a pattern. And salvation is what? From the Lord, yes. It's all from the Lord. And so salvation is the same way. Salvation is of the Lord. What do you contribute uh, to your salvation? You contribute the same things these brothers contributed. Their sin and their need. Their sin and their need. how, How did the brothers end up in this situation? Through their sin... Right? Uh, toward Joseph, their brother, and their need for food and to be, to be alive, their sin and their need drove them to, to where they were at this point. What do you contribute to your salvation? Your sin, which you need somebody in your behalf. You can't get to God on your own. You contribute your sin and your need for salvation means that you can't save yourself. Listen, listen, and you need to hear this. Everybody listen to me. You can't save yourself. God requires for you to be perfect. God is a God of perfection, and he requires perfection for you to, from you to be in relationship with him. Perfection. And y'all are terrible at that. We all are terrible at that. And so the only way, the 
only way for salvation to be, for us to be received that salvation is for someone, for God himself to come and live like you and me, to, to, to live in this uh, world, to be tempted in every way, just like you are, yet he does it without sin, to lay his life down. The scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It took the precious blood of Jesus to cover your sin debt. And then if Jesus was still, uh, was, was still dead, then none of this would make a difference. But the scripture says he is alive. God raised him from the dead. And he is ever interceding on, our, on mine and your behalf, the right hand of the Father. And so... To be saved, to be in relationship with God, you contribute your need and your sin, and the only way to meet that need is through Jesus. Amen. Through Jesus, through repenting and believing. We're going to get to that in just a few minutes. God supplies all the rest. God supplies the calling. Listen, you're not going to come to Jesus unless God calls you. But whenever you feel that tug in your heart, that, that, that inner voice within you going, I'm I need to be saved. Man, clearly I need to know Jesus. That is the Spirit of God awakening you to the gospel. That is the Spirit of God saying, because you won't do that on your own. Gospel pre- you know what gospel preaching does? Gospel preaching is that God uses this gospel preaching so that the Spirit of God chooses to awaken you to the gospel. God supplies the calling. God supplies the awakening. God supplies the regenerating, which means making your heart alive. God supplies the saving, and God supplies the keeping. Amen? Amen. That's, that's, that is true biblical doctrine. That's why we see it. God at work through the entire scriptures. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to his cross I cling. This is why it's so critical in gospel teaching and gospel preaching that we don't turn rich texts like this into do better and try harder. This is not the way of salvation. This is not the way of sanctification. Yes, we put to death some things, but we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. When the, when the when New Testament tells us to put off some things and put away some things and put to death some things, that happens because the Spirit of God lives in us and helps us put those things to death. We do those on our own. We can't do those on our own. It takes the Spirit of God living in us to put those things to death. Our text goes on to reinforce this teaching. Look what it says in verse 7. And God sent me before you. This is Joseph talking again. He said, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here. Look, Joseph said, hey, brothers, it's not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord to all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Who sent Joseph? God sent him there. God sent Joseph. Why? He sent Joseph to preserve a remnant on the earth, to keep alive many survivors. And this too points us to Jesus who was sent from God to preserve a remnant on the earth and to keep alive to God Many survivors. Not all. Not everyone will come to Jesus. But many. Joseph reminds us again in verse 8 that it was God who sent him. He said it was God who had him go through all the trials. It was God who had him endure the hardship. And it was God who raised him up. Much like, he, much, much like Jesus does. John chapter 10. John writes this. It's not going to be on the screen. But you can just, just listen to what he said. Jesus said these things. Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
And all who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not, go on, does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, for there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. Joseph's story points us to the fact that God orchestrated even the vilest events to achieve the salvation of his people. And it remember, it remember the promise from, from Abraham? He said, I'm going to make a, a nation, a, many, a nation of many people. And all this points us to Jesus who laid down his life even in the middle of the vilest of events to achieve the salvation of you and me. The story of Joseph and the reunion of his brothers uh, is a type and shadow of what Jesus does and the salvation that he offers to you and me. Our sin against a righteous and holy God is even much greater than the brother's sin that they had against Joseph, even viler than they committed against him. But the story of Joseph shows us tremendous grace and love. God extends to you and me even much greater grace and love. There was great sin against Joseph, but grace abounded all the more. Where your sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Amen. Salvation came through Joseph to his brothers and to the world. Salvation comes through Jesus to you today. How does that happen, preacher? Maybe you're here and you're going, okay, I hear you. That salvation is needed. That salvation is from the Lord. And I think I need to be, right now, I think that I need to be saved. I think I need to become part of the family. I want God to do the same thing for me that he's done for you. I want God to go to rescue me and to save me. How does that happen? It happens in two ways. One, you repent of your sins which means you confess your sins to God. You go, God, I'm sinned against you. I recognize that I sinned against you. And because that, I, sh I deserve your wrath. I deserve your punishment. And so I just want to confess them to you. I want to repent for them. I want to turn away from my sin. I don't want to keep doing this. I want to follow you. I want to repent and I want to believe the gospel. 
The gospel said, I've already told you what the gospel was, that Jesus came. Your only hope in salvation is through the finished work of Jesus. What's the finished work of Jesus? He came. He was born like you and me. He lived. He was tempted in every way like you and me, yet he did it without sin. He laid his life down on the cross. Without the shedding of Jesus' blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. He poured out his blood to cover our sin debt, and God raised him from the dead. That's the gospel message. And we believe that that was done on our behalf. And that Jesus is now our king. The, what, what we see in all throughout the New Testament after Jesus comes is people that trust Jesus. They turn away from all this stuff over here and go, I'm done with this. I'm following the king. He's given his life for me. He's resurrected. God is a, Jesus is alive. I'm following him. This is not a checkbox thing. This is a thing to give our life to Jesus. Repent. Believe the gospel. That's my urge to you. That is my, that, that's what I have, have prayed for you this week. That's how I prayed for you this morning. That some of you would believe the gospel message today. This chapter closes with Israel, their dad, saying, Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go see him before I die. And this preacher's here to tell you that Jesus is alive. And you too can see him face to face. Hebrews chapter 9 says this. It is appointed unto man once to die in the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins for many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. When Jesus comes the second time, it won't be to deal with sin. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I urge you today, church. Be sure of your salvation. Be sure of your salvation. Know that God loves you so much that he orchestrated for you to be here today to hear this. If you're watching online, he orchestrated for you to watch online and hear this today. He orchestrated this. He loves you and bids you come. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let's pray.